Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, bit of. God, we're going to, I think, level three on the 1st of December. Because I don't know about you, but this COVID-2 has been very, very difficult. Sure I tell has. you, the McWilliams household is not, <laughs> it's not bearing up well. There's all sorts of sparks flying. There's all sorts of mental it's issues going on. I'm telling you, the commune is revolting. And of course, the elder lemon of the commune is just sitting here thinking, well, you know, why can't we all be nice? Now, listen, in a sec, we're going to be talking to one of the best economists on Wall Street, a guy called David Rosenberg, classically brilliant communicator of economics. Great big picture view. His big picture view, though, is not the most reassuring. So stay with us. But, you know, John is here. And he's, he's shaking his head. He says, no crack this week. No crack at all. No crack at all. Well, it's all, everyone's round. I mean, the vaccine is here. You know what I find so funny, John? The vaccine has arrived. I've been waiting for this for months. Yeah. And then suddenly it arrives. Two or three of them arrive at the same time. It's like and a bus. It is like a bus. And then, of course, you have the, oh, no, that won't work. <laughs> oh, no, we won't be able to roll that out. I mean, anyway, the only story is the vaccination, John. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, which is great. I'm delighted the vaccines are here. But, you know, now all the talk is the details of the vaccination. And actually, I don't care. Just get it Just done. Just get it done. <laughs> Just get it done. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully, as you said, you might not have to be injected, John. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's very important. You might be able to, you might be able to, you know, put it into your pint. I tell you what I do need. I need a vaccination for the old COVID bag. How's the Ned? Ned has got huge. I've put on loads away because, you know, the gym hasn't been open. I can't wait. We're level three. It means the five-a-side soccer career is back in. In about two weeks' time, the oldest man in the park, Jan Moby, spraying balls around the place. With the dodgy knee. With the dodgy knee and there's no movement. It's all. Do you remember Jan Moby? Played in the middle for Liverpool. Danish guy. Right, right. Never moved at all, all through the 80s. Great footballer. And he's one of those... Danish lads who went to Liverpool 
And Heinrich Hoch's like, that's now. And I should know Scully, he's got a perfect Scouse accent. He's like, he sounds like Johnny Aldridge. He's like, a, he's like a rotund Johnny Aldridge. Brilliant stuff. Anyway, let us talk economics. Yes, it's a big week this week. Well, crucial week. And it really tells us a lot about Joe Biden's presidency is his pick for Treasury Secretary. Now, if you were on the left of the Democratic Party, you would have thought this is a totemic position, like the Minister for Finance of America, right? The left wanted Elizabeth Warren because they thought Elizabeth Warren would drive the more radical left agenda. Mm -hmm. The Bernie left, the AOC left, etc. Who does Biden go for? Steady Eddie, pair of hands, Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen was the... Fed. Head of Fed? Head of the Fed. Yeah. Now, if you want a little bit of real deep economic nerd. Go on. Janet Yellen is married to a Nobel Prize winner for economics. Oh. Okay. A chap called George Akerlof. And George Akerlof's Nobel Prize for economics was won due to a seminal paper called The Market for Lemons. I guess you, you not. Right? You've got to explain that one. So the market for lemons is the market for secondhand cars. So it's his whole idea was on why everyone gets ripped off by secondhand car dealers. You might not think this is sufficient to merit a Nobel Prize, but it was. <laughs> okay. What was so enlightening about it? Nothing. This is the whole thing about economics. Because he was talking about it's this economic obsession with information and not having pure information, of course a second-hand car dealer is going to rip you off. That's what they do. Anybody knows that. Yeah, yeah. One, one female owner only, one loving yeah. female. No, man, it's with two joyriders. We're doing donuts down the and, long mile And they award him a Nobel. So, George... Does, does that not kind of, you know, undermine that a little well, bit? Well, no, I mean, there was a lot more. He wrote a lot more, but this is the... <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> so, can you imagine the kind of chit-chat in the Akerlof yelling household about economics. But anyway, she is going to be the Treasury Secretary. Now, what this means, John, it means the left have been defeated. Huge significance might not be picked up quite now. It means that Biden has said the lesson from this election is that the Democrat Party needs to be in the centre, which was, do you remember Laura Tyson? She said exactly the same thing. Remember, she said, we are not socialists. Mm. We need to get this message out. So what they really believed was that the swing voter, the one they really had to talk to, Mm. they didn't talk to, right? That Biden didn't pick up those Americans in the middle or in the centre-left. They're centre-left socially, but they're afraid of high taxes. And now Yellen will be steady pair of hands. But the question we might answer in this podcast, is a steady pair of hands enough, given the dilemmas and the economic conundrums that the United States faces? Hey, listen, we're going to talk to, we're going to talk to David Rosenberg now, John. It might be a bit economic-y. Okay, okay. Right? I can handle a bit of that. Okay, and then what we'll do is we listen to David, we'll come back, and you say, okay, I got that, I didn't get that. What does that mean? What is that implication? Because I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Great. By the way, David Rosenberg is on a phone line, which is not ideal. So the line's not as great as I would normally like it. But, you know, the content is fantastic. So have a listen. One of the must-read economics 
guys for many, many years, many, many years, is David Rosenberg from Toronto. He's now running his own shop. And actually, we'll talk about that in a second, uh, David. But it's really, really wonderful to have you on the podcast. I'd love you to hear you. I know you're in Toronto. You just told me you've got the first snows of the year. Winter in Toronto can't be very pleasant. How are you? Well, you know, uh, as I keep on telling everybody, uh, I've been trying to figure out after all this time, you know, how I managed to get cabin fever when I don't own a cabin. Uh, but, <laughs> I, thought, uh, I thought all Canadians own cabins. Uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, with our uh, dog sleds uh, and our igloos and uh, the axe uh, to chop the wood and the ice. But yeah, we got hit with the first snowfall uh, last night. And so... Um, uh, you know, what can I say? Uh, uh, better in November than in July, but uh, it's still going to be a tough winter. Yeah, absolutely. Now, David, let's stand back with our economics hats on, okay? And we park the, park the market for a moment and look at the fundamental position of the United States economy first. Where do you think its weaknesses are and its strengths? You know, assuming that your vaccine comes in, people get inoculated. As you said, we're not going back to normal, but we're going back to something like we can actually see into the future. We can we can look at our economic tools and say, okay, this is how the world looks to me. What are the strengths and what are the weaknesses of the U.S. economy? Well, I think that well, we'll get into um, what the weaknesses are. Uh, you know, let's just say that we are going to see once enough of the population gets inoculated and we achieve hopefully some degree of herd immunity, we're going to have one or two quarters of a uh, significant acceleration in GDP growth. The big mistake will be, you know, whether that's a second and third quarter story of 2021, it probably is. It's really what happens after we get that initial pent-up demand euphoria. And uh, I think it's going to be a real tough slog. Uh, I mean, let's face it. We can all talk about the vaccines all we want. It's great we're going to have the vaccines, but a year ago, we didn't have the COVID either. Yeah, what we're left with. We're left with a lot of unknowns. Uh, how does a $3.5 trillion U.S. fiscal deficit get resolved? I mean, we went into this with a trillion dollars at a time of full employment, and now we're $3.5 trillion with almost a 7% unemployment rate, and that deficit is destined to get higher. Uh, how are these monumental deficits and debts going to be dealt with? Uh, how will they get resolved? We went into this mess, you know, with the Fed balance sheet roughly $400 billion. Now it's $750 billion and expanding. So um, we have a lot of unknowns. Is this a stable equilibrium, the size of these fiscal deficits, the size of the Fed's balance sheet? So those are big question marks about how those ultimately get resolved. But let's go back and talk about what it means to go and revert to the old normal. What was the old normal? What was that 10-year old normal from 2010 to 2019? It was an old normal of low growth, low inflation, and low interest rates, which is why, by the way, growth stocks trounced value stocks 80% of the time in that 10-year bull market. And so the old normal was really low rates, low inflation, low growth. And you'll say, well, but the stock market went up fivefold. Well, of course, because we had the greatest financial engineering debt for equity swap of all time as companies issued gobs of debt to pay down to repurchase their stock to the point where the share count of the S&P 500 went down to a 20-year low. I think that one of the fundamental things that we're going to have to grapple with is this. How much permanent damage was there done to the economy? during this crisis. 
When you look at the data, you're going to see that 7% of the small business sector, this was the Census Bureau uh, Small Business Pulse Survey, 7% say that their operations are never going to return to normal. Wow. So therefore, wow. you're saying, yeah, well, think about that in terms of what we can come to grips with, which is jobs. That means potentially two to three million jobs. You're talking about anywhere between one and two years where the job creation aren't coming back. So structurally high unemployment. And we've come down a long way in the unemployment rate. Don't forget, part of that is not just because we had more job growth. A lot of it is because we had a whole lot of people, especially women in the services sector, leave the labor force. How long have they left the labor force for? So we're going to be left with structurally high unemployment, especially in parts of the labor market that are, by definition, unskilled. How will these people get reengaged? So we're going to be left with higher levels of structural unemployment. The question is how much. These are all the questions that will be answered after the two quarters of going back to the malls and going to the theme parks and going and flying on a vacation. And then reality is going to set in, not just on the deficits and debts, but also on the structural damage, unemployment being one of them. These are things, of course, that we're not asking right now because it's all about the risk on trade and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But remember, after the light at the end of the tunnel, okay, there's going to be other paths we have to go on after that. Life doesn't end just because we get to the light at the end of the tunnel. What lies beyond that is also going to matter at some particular point in time. Look, we went into this situation, the most incredible, incredible statistic is that over half of the household sector, over half of the number of households in the United States did not have enough savings, did not have enough liquidity, dry powder, coins in the cookie jar to get through three months of idle economic activity. Think about that. At a time of a 50-year low, 3.5% unemployment rate, and one of the biggest bull markets in risk assets of all time. That's that's all we got. We got we got a situation where there was so much conspicuous consumption in these ten years and no savings that over half the household sector didn't have enough cash on hand to get through three months of idle economic activity. So on top of structurally high unemployment, we're gonna come through the other side of this once we get past this euphoric stage with an understanding that we have to keep more cash on hand. So if the old equilibrium was a trend of a 7% personal savings rate in the United States, I would contend that the new normal will be more like a 10% savings rate. There will be higher precautionary savings in the future. And that's not the end of the world, not at all. Uh, It's a realization. But you see, unless we get gargantuan income growth, Saving more out of current income means that we're going to have less on hand for consumption growth. In the United States, where consumer spending is 70% of GDP, that takes a pretty big chunk out of aggregate demand, otherwise known as GDP. So I think we're going to come out of this. If you're taking a look at how things get resolved, we talked about deficits and debts. We're going to come out with higher structural unemployment, and a higher equilibrium savings rate, which has implications both for the supply and demand side for the economy. But if your view for the pandemic was that, say, potential non-inflationary GDP growth in the United States is somewhere around 2%, in the future, it could be something very closer to 1%. So, David, I mean, let's, let's take this all and look. The picture you're painting for me looks like Japan 
for the last 20 odd years. Very, very high deficits, a very serious growth problem, a serious underemployment problem. And as you say, the deficit uh, as a percent of GDP just gets higher and higher. Is that is that what I should be looking at? Well, I think that um, I think that process already started, and uh, Europe uh, was following Japan, and maybe you can argue that the U.S. is following Europe, and we're all basically following Japan in terms of uh, aging demographics, and in terms of really a, a post shock economy with an overhang of massive indebtedness, and the, really the key here is the indebtedness now. It's much higher in Japan, and their demographics are more challenging in Japan. But the whole Western world is really following that model. And that's one of the things that uh, I would just say. When people say, well, we're going back to the old normal, I can't wait to get back to the pre-COVID normal. I continue to say the pre-COVID normal was the slowest economic growth over any 10-year period going back to the 1930s. That was that was the last 10 years. So people say, well, but look at the stock market. Yes, the stock market, because companies bought back their stock and gave an inflated view towards earnings per share. That was really the story of the stock market. But you can see what happened in the last cycle, right? Did the Fed ever unwind its balance sheet? No. No, no it doesn't. Did the Fed ever get did the Fed, the Fed never normalize its balance sheet it was supposed to? You know, God forbid, God forbid, Jay Powell has the temerity to temerity to take the Fed funds rate to 2.5% in December of 2018. At that point, the Fed thought neutral was three. They went to 2.5%. The markets went into a connection. Of course, we know that the president went into a connection. Uh, and everything just froze up. The credit market froze up. People started talking about a recession. Of course, the next year, we get the Powell pivot. So what does it mean? What does it mean that the central bank cannot normalize interest rates? It's telling you something abnormal about the economy that we're talking about. In other words, too much debt. That's the Japanese situation. You have financial oppression for traditional risk-averse investors Oh, that maybe will ultimately get pushed into the equity market, push these people outside their comfort zone. They can't get a decent enough coupon for their retirement years because interest rates for the borrowers of society would dominate. And that's what happens when you get to these massive debt ratios. And consider in that last cycle that the Fed could never get, and again, in the context of a 3.5% unemployment rate in a booming stock market, the Fed could never get the funds rate above 2.5% without tipping everything over, really tells you something about really there's two fundamental factors here at work that COVID or vaccines can't change. One is the aging demographics. One is the aging demographics. Demographics is destiny, and, and the higher dependency ratio in the United States, the aging profile of the baby boom population, the 73 million pig and a python that's driven everything, that's not changing. That is inherently, by the way, deflationary. For all the inflationistas out there, demographics are intensely deflationary and will be even more so in the next 10 years than they were in the past 10 years. But you see the debt situation is even a bigger tourniquet. So, uh, you know, we, we've got to go back and just remember the Rogoff and Reinhardt classic of over a decade ago on how you cross a threshold on debt where it is no longer expansionary. It is 
concurrently, but then it acts as a deflationary tourniquet on growth. Because guess what? People always say, well, we can afford to finance all this. Interest rates are zero. But, you know, ask any homeowner when interest rates are zero who's borrowing money on their mortgage. Uh, why am I still paying the bank? Because I thought rates were zero. Yeah, because you're still going to pay the principal. And so the debt, that's the thing is that we're stuck in this debt trap that's become even worse than the pandemic. You see, that's what people, people who are watching Bubble Vision all day long, and they can understand there's a light at the end of the tunnel, there's, there's, there's optimism, and deservedly so, on the vaccine. But we're going to come out the other side having to grapple with these monumental debts, these, these debts that actually created the conditions for financial oppression. I'm talking about Japanese-like interest rates. You know, the equity market isn't for everybody. There are some people that wouldn't mind having a positive interest rate, especially retirees. No, no, absolutely. And so, and so that's why, then that's why it's going to become even more Japan-like because when you have debt levels and debt ratios, this gargantuan. I mean, you're talking about the total debt to GDP ratio in the United States is 350%. So interest rates can never possibly move up without generating the conditions we had in the fourth quarter of 2018 where we dodged a bullet. That's how sensitive the economy is to interest rates because of the gargantuan debt levels that we have. So, David, what you, the picture you're painting for me, okay, let's, let's talk about, we know that basically there's two ways you can pay debt, maybe three. Either you can grow out of it but what you're saying is the growth dynamics ain't there for the United States, okay, for a variety of reasons, savings ratios, structural problems, et cetera. You renegotiate it. You devalue your currency. You do What, what do you think is going to happen to the dollar in this situation? Because at some stage, people are going to say, oh, hold on a second. These guys are going to have to do something about this debt, which will involve inflating it away at some stage. Well, uh, you know, it's a it's a difficult question. It's because um, you know the, the U.S. is not alone. I mean, if you look at the euro area, that ratios are even higher. Japan's even higher. I mean, there's some Nordic countries and Asian countries that actually have decent balance sheets. Uh, you know, Canada's best to GDP ratio at the government corporate personal level is even higher than it is in Italy and in the U.S. And so, look, we're all in this together. You know, what are the choices? You know, Japan never defaulted on its debt. It's learned to live with it. But then again, you know, the Japanese aren't American. Precisely. They're a much more, a much more collegiate, much more unified society, much more able to take direction from the top, much more homogenous society. Well, they also, and, and their expectations are a lot lower. And I would say, as a general rule, maybe a tad less materialistic. And, more, and a more forgiving population. I mean, don't forget that these debts and these deficits and the periods of stagnation and wasteful money on uh, paving riverbeds that nobody needed, building roads that nobody drove on, uh, was all under the LDP, which had a stranglehold on power for decades. So, look, different cultures, but it's really... Uh, the debt problem is really a global problem, not just a U.S. problem. So it's hard to really say that this has any implications for the U.S. dollar. We're really in this together. I mean, what 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 country didn't go into this with a dilapidated balance sheet? You know, maybe like I said, some Nordic countries in your neck of the woods in in Europe, and uh, some other countries, say in Southeast Asia. But you know, for the for most of the developed world, we went into this with gargantuan debts and deficits. They got worse. It's not just a U.S. problem. 
you can try and reflate your way out of the problem. But as I said before, the demographics are working against you uh, in that regard. This is not, you know, the 1960s and 70s and the 80s uh, when you had vibrant populations. Look at the fertility rates and the birth rates in the Western world, and you don't have a vibrant young population to help drive agri-demand. We're not there. And, and it's not as if we didn't try and reflate our way out of the situation from 2009 to 2019. You know, we had massive infrastructure spending, and one side of the book ends with Barack Obama, and then we finish off with these gargantuan tax cuts by Donald Trump. Um, we had an accommodative Fed, super accommodative Fed, the whole way through. Even when the Fed was nudging the funds rate higher, uh, de facto, that funds rate, because of the balance sheet, was still negative. So you couldn't have asked more in the context of an economic expansion, more of a reflationary government policy. And look where it got us. You know, maybe at some point, you know, we'll have the debt you believe will have outright coordinated global debt monetization. That would certainly be inflationary. That's one way to do it. Or we just learn to live with it. I don't think we're going to manage to grow our way out of it. But we tried that. We either learn to live with it, and that means uh, structurally low economic growth for a long period of time, or the default that you're talking about will be outright debt monetization, where the central banks around the world monetize their debt simultaneously, so there is no currency war as a result of this. And uh, there's a real risk uh, that what comes out the other side is substantial inflation. Now, that's one way you get out of this, is you really inflate your way out of your debt morass. But, you know, there's no free lunch. You know, just like deflation creates winners and losers, who do you hurt with inflation is you hurt pensioners. And there's going to be a lot of pensioners looking at the demographic profile. So you create inflation. It's hard to say you're going to help bail out debtors, true, but it's going to hurt a whole lot of other people. So sure. I just don't know. There's no free lunch. Uh, what, what I'm going to suggest is that when you talk about following the road of Catan, Living with this and trying to grow out of it is going to take, you know, generations. Uh, but it's also going to put a, a cap on growth for a long period of time. David, before you go, I just want to ask you, you uh, on the political implications of all this, because you mentioned Barack Obama and Donald Trump there on the kind of bookending the decade coming out of the financial crisis. What does all this mean for the new guy, Joe Biden? Well, you know, look, I, I think that... Um, you know, it's a very interesting election because, you know, Joe Biden, you know, notwithstanding um, that the current president's not really making the transition that easy, obviously. You can say that again. This is argue, Canadian understatement, is it? It's a little bit of an understatement. But look, we don't know. We, we still have to wait for the January 5th Georgia runoffs on those two Senate seats. But let's, let's assume that they stay Republican, which is the reasonable assumption. Then the most powerful person in Washington actually isn't Joe Biden. It's Mitch McConnell, because nothing is going to happen that doesn't get through the Senate. So, you know, people that say that gridlock is good, that's the mantra, gridlock is good. But actually, in this case, we need effective leadership. Uh, Maybe that's why China is coming out of this. I mean, ironically enough, China's coming out of this, the epicenter of the crisis, in, in the best shape economically. They didn't blow their brains out on fiscal or monetary policy, and their share of GDP is going to continue to go up. And I don't really think that's reversible. Uh, maybe it's time where you actually want to have maybe a, um, a one-party rule. Maybe in this environment probably would be better. But the one point that I want to make is this. The the vote in the U.S. was a vote against tax increases. And there's a lot of people in my constituency 
and a lot of my clients here in the states were thrilled that the Democratic base in the House went down and that uh, the Senate's probably going to stay Republican. And the mantra is that the left lost. I mean, uh, Trump may have lost, but the left lost. But, you know, tax has become a real dirty three-letter word in the United States. And so in some sense, if we're not going to have a debate over taxation, how are we going to have a debate over how to tackle these monumental deficits and debts? Then on top of that, the one thing we didn't discuss, which again is not being addressed, and I don't know if it can be addressed through just the president alone. I think you really need to have the Senate and the House, but income inequality. That's a lingering issue that's, that's not being resolved and somehow all of a sudden has been swept under the carpet again. Well, let's conclude on that because you were saying there that the one half of the American population does not have the cash to get through three months of an unemployment shock, number one. And at the same time, the stock market has gone up five times, which has really enriched a the people with assets in general, right? So we have this huge inequality now. Let's conclude on that. I mean, where do you see, if you're not going to, if you if you're not going to talk about tax, if you've got gridlock, as you say, with Mitch McConnell calling the shots and Joe Biden basically being free in foreign policy but not necessarily domestically, and you have this massive inequality, what kind of gives at the end? Well, look, I, I think that um, you know if we don't redress the income and wealth inequality, and the problem here, of course, is that without the fiscal side, which has been pushed into the corner in the past several months, the onus is on Fed policy. The onus is back on the Fed, and it's always on the Fed. It's too much on the Fed. And the Fed can only influence the real economy very loosely through its impact on the financial economy. So in a very first way, how the Fed ultimately influences economic growth is by boosting financial asset inflation, and that's one of the root causes of the massive uh, wealth inequalities that we have in the system. But we also have not just wealth inequalities, but we also have income inequalities that have to be resolved through fiscal policy. Uh, I think that one of the, I guess, not so, I say, socially friendly aspects of the election was a thumbs down to taxation. Look, nobody wants you to taxes go up, but then some will have to come up with a solution as, A, how do these debts and deficits get resolved, and how do we make the tax system more growth-friendly by putting more money in the hands of people that actually spend the money as opposed to investing in financial assets. This doesn't gain me a lot of popularity among my own constituents on Wall Street, but it's a, a debate that we have to have. And I think that this is going to sow the seeds for social instability, which hasn't gone away. And it's one of the reasons why I continue to like gold. Gold is always valued as a quotient of one divided by T, where T is trust. And leave this pandemic, and we'll be leaving it in the next few months with higher debts, older demographics, and wider income inequalities. So once we get to the end of the tunnel, which now everybody is pricing in, the question is going to be what lies beyond that tunnel. That's the key. David, thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, uh, looking forward to the next time we can uh, have a fight together. Perfect. That'll be nice. Brilliant, David. Listen, talk to you then. Okay, all the best. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, 
Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That was David Rosenberg, whose, whose Twitter handle is EconGuyRosie. So right. at EconGuyRosie for his Twitter handle. He is, again, a guy I met about 10 years ago. I was doing an event in the States and he opened up the, uh, the conference. And he is wonderful. He publishes a daily newsletter called Breakfast with Dave. So he must do it in the middle of the night. Jesus. Right? And it's amazing. Like right. Heavy on the data, but everything you want to know about what moves in America, he has it. Yeah. And it's well worth it. So again, if you're on Twitter, at EconGuyRosie, David's company is David Rosenberg Associates. And I'm telling you, this newsletter every morning, well worth it. If financial markets, if politics, if geopolitics is your thing, just have a listen to it. Would you- do you know what was interesting in all? Like there was, there was so much in that, and, and I, I want you to decipher some of it for me. But overall, he was talking about the three biggest challenges for the US post-COVID is high unemployment, particularly in the SME sector, too much debt, and weak growth. Yeah. So, so what can the likes of Yellen do about that? Well, you heard... David talking there about gridlock is good, right? Mm. There's a lot of people who believe because they don't want higher taxes, right? That the idea that Mitch McConnell is now maybe more important than Joe Biden. He always was. That's what he did with Obama. He blocked everything. And now he's in that position again. I don't Mm. think enough people appreciate how the whole whole machine works. Janet Yellen would be seen as a unifier not a divider right so the idea is who can they all talk to who can they sit down with etc but you know rosenberg's ideas are very simply said you have too much debt mm-hmm. there's only two ways you can get rid of debt either you grow out of it dramatically or three ways you grow out of it you default on it are you inflated away or you get used to it a la japan right. so that is really interesting but unpick what he was saying he's saying Americans went into COVID with very high levels of employment. And yet, at the same time, only half American families 
had more than three months cash in their bank account, yeah. the liquidity of things to sell, right? So that, again, underscores the huge income inequality. Mm. Then you think, okay, what does that mean? It means these huge levels of debt mean that America and the Fed is unable to raise interest rates, to get interest rates back to what we regard as normal levels, right? 3% interest rate. Why? Because so much of the American economy is sensitive to debt. Right. So number one, you can't raise interest rates. Now, why do you think raising interest rates would be good? Raising interest rates is good for people who have savings because they get their income mm. from savings. And if you can't raise interest rates, what you're talking about is something called financial repression. That's what economists call it. When you hold interest rates down too low for too long because you're totally and utterly captured by the debt. Okay? Right. And you're trying to get people to spend. You're trying to get people to spend. But and again, if people are unemployed, yeah, they're going to save that little bit more. If people feel that unemployment, you know the way they always say, a downturn is when your mate loses his job. A recession is when you lose your job, right? Yeah. So if you see your mate losing your job, losing his job or her job, you get worried. Yeah. And that's what David was saying then. The savings ratio rises from 7% to 10%. But if people are saving, they're not spending. So the growth rate, which is dependent on spending, yeah. because 70% of American GDP spending can't rise. So therefore the debt, the debt GDP ratio can't fall. Okay? So this is the this is the debt trap. This is the debt trap he's talking about. And right. America is going into it. Now he was saying it's not just America. It's Japan leads the way. It mm. went into a debt trap in the late 1990s. Okay. Right. European Union is either there or moving towards it. And America's either behind the European Union or ahead of us. Right. But all of the West have decided that the way in which we will deal with falling population dynamics, bad demographics, i.e. the countries getting too old, is that we are going to borrow from the future in order to maintain our lifestyles now. Yeah. He said, you can do that indefinitely, but the cost of this is very low levels of interest rate. And then how this flows into the economy, it means that people who depend on the rate of interest for their income, pensioners, mm. are going to get... Well, we say, he's saying this basically, you're going to have to lower your expectations. He's not saying you're going to get shafted. Right, this is what's happening in Japan. This right? is exactly what's happening in Japan. So he used the phrase, you just got to learn to live with debt. I'm not really sure what that... What does that look like? Well, well okay, that's a good question. What he's saying is that if your expectation is lots of economic growth, Lots of effervescence, lots of fun, lots of crack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That ain't going to happen, right? right? He's saying what we're going to have to get used to is low levels of economic growth, low expectations about what life or the economy can deliver, and really reframe our whole worldview about the economy. Now, it's he's a saying, tall order, isn't he's it? Saying, well, he's saying, are you default on your debts? Are you monetize your debts? Are you inflate them away? Now, what he's talking about is something that would have been inconceivable a long time ago, like even 10 years ago. Mm. But now you think, hmm, if the debt trap has been sprung, John, and we're in a debt trap, there are only a couple of ways out of it. And of course, what he's saying is that there will be a huge amount of positive emotions in the next six months as the vaccine comes in, we get inoculated, mm. people spend money that they were saving, everyone thinks to go back to normal, but he's saying, no, that's not what's going to happen. Yeah, it's this coming back to normal that 
you know, everyone is expecting that we get back to some sort of normal. But as, who's the Indian author? The Roy. Yeah. What she said was really, it's normal that got us here. Yes. And that's what he's saying too. He's, he's, she was saying it in the sort of philosophical and, yeah. and, and literary way. And she's very political as well. Uh, he was saying, economically, this is where we are at. We are in a debt trap. Yeah. Right? Now, the other way of looking at it is, can you imagine what Japan would have been like had it not borrowed all this money? So there is a counter argument. Mm. There's a sort of a counterintuitive argument that in a way, this is the way the world is going. As the old, as he's talked about the baby boomers, yeah. get old and they still want kind of 1970s, 1980s style growth. Mm. You know, because they're, they're, they're still quite fit. I mean, these are the people who take holidays, these sort of, you know, winter holidays, etc. right? Yeah. They still want to live a reasonably, as a band they might like, the Beatles or <laughs> yeah. the Eagles. Life in the Fast Lane, was it the Eagles? That was the Eagles, yeah. yeah. Right, okay. Um, but what I took away from what David was saying, and again, you have to listen to these guys carefully, right? What he's saying is that the Western world is waltzing itself up a debt cul-de-sac. And there's no really way out of that. And that's quite fascinating. Do you know what is interesting, what he did say, which I find fascinating, and and I have to resist putting on my conspiracy hat here, but I'm not going to... Uh, don't put to... it on, put it on. John's conspiracy hat <laughs> is... Do you know Kwai had a weakness for hats? <laughs> he had really cool hats. He had really cool. John's hats are not Kwai's hats. <laughs> but come here, what he was saying was, it looks like China will come out of this whole COVID thing in the best shape of, you know... Of anyone, any country. Of any country in the world. Yeah, yes. And you said, begin to think, you know, was Trump right? Was Donny right? Did he have his finger on the pulse? But it is, it, it, I mean, you know, what you have to conclude is that these big events, you know, like these big events shift the way in which the world operates. The Chinese don't have a debt problem. Yeah. Not huge anyway, Right. Their economy is enormous and can now be generated by internal growth. Right. They don't need to export that much anymore, right? Even though they do. Yeah. The currency's undervalued, right? They manage everything. He's right. China comes out of this looking much stronger than when it went in. And the West comes out of this looking much weaker than when we went in. You could start thinking all sorts of untoward stuff is going on. John has a weakness for Breitbart. No, I, I I look at, I read Breitbart and it's awful, awful shite. Like it really is. It's brutal. But but you have to, you know your enemy, Mac. That's No, nice. man, I take the words that the, the rivers are sufficiently polluted without any more pollution. <laughs> well, come here, let me ask you a question. Like we haven't really been here before, have we? Historically, you know the way we always yeah. go back and have a look and go, this is what they did then and, you know, this could apply John, now. we have absolutely been here before. In fact, the history of money is the history of debt and credit. And if you go all the way back to the Bible, it's there. Because I know, John, you read extensively. Indeed, I do. The Bible. Like you're just... oh, oh, I thought you meant Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Biblical reading. Gideon's Bible, John. No, no, but if you go to the Old Testament, there's a huge amount of madness in the Old Testament, but there's a huge amount of wisdom. There's a great book, actually, called Debt, the first 5,000 years, a history by a guy called David Graeber, right. who passed away, who died suddenly this summer. Very brilliant American 
anthropologist, sociologist, whatever. Right. It's about the history of debt. It's really fascinating. But what he makes the point is that most civilizations had embedded in them, particularly our Judeo-Christian civilization, had debt forgiveness, jubilee years. And you go all the way back to the Old Testament. And what basically happened was the Old Testament said, look, if you put your neighbor into debt indefinitely, he or she will get really, really, really pissed off and will eventually yeah. rise up against you. Yeah, that's So you have to have these debt cancellations. And, you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, huge parts of those books are about the economics of debt, which, again, you never hear people talking about now, but that's fundamental to it. So to ask, to answer your question, as you go right back, mm. too much debt exacerbates wealth and income inequality to yeah. such an extent that those in debt what the biblical people told, called debt bondage, when you actually become a slave yeah, yeah, yeah. to the amount yeah, of debt, yeah. rise up and destroy the temple. That's what it's all about. It's like the, if you think about the Pharisees and the priests, what they were really trying to do was protect the status quo mm. so the peasants wouldn't rise up and destroy the temple, right? And one of the sensitivities they understood of really ancient civilization was this debt bondage, that at some stage you have to cancel the debt. Now, take that. I mean, it's going back a long way, but it it's is not, a bit. Yeah, but that's good. I like it. It is good. It is good, John. You know, I read widely. <laughs> I read widely on these issues. But uh, so I think you could be right. You know, do you remember Jubilee two thousand? I do. It was a drop the debt for the third world. Yes, I do. Yeah. Could we could end up in the same sort of position for the first world? And all it does then is it rewards the debtors and penalizes the creditors. And many people would argue that that's the rebalance that we should have. Because at the essence of inequality is the creditors mm. have too much sway and the debtors have too much debt. And somebody's got to pay. Revolutionary words from the David McWilliams podcast. <laughs> While I have you, John and I put this together with James, as you know, every week. And it's great fun and we're really enjoying it. However, it does cost it costs a lot. So it would be great if you could support us on Patreon. Now, what you get on Patreon is number one, if you don't like ads, you get no ads. Number two, you get Q&A, which is basically almost like our own little conversation about each episode after the episode. You ask the questions, didn't get that? Explain that a little bit more. I answer on the episode. You also get every two weeks a bespoke economics tutorial on an issue, a concept, a theory of economics that you ask me and I answer called Ask Mac. And of course, finally, you get all the economic content, all the course, all the lecture notes, all the reading lists on the David McWilliams Global Economics course. So support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Cheers. Cheers.